I would also like for you to give yourselves a round of applause in just a minute because today represents the day that we've ended and gotten to the last king of our Chronicles of the Kings series. So give yourselves a round of applause. You made it all the way to the end. Hopefully you are starting to see some of the themes that come up in the Chronicles of the Kings series, that whether kings are good or they're bad, they ultimately fall short of the glory of the one true king, King Jesus. And that happens over and over and over again. And today we get to our last king that we're going to look at, King Josiah. If you have your Bible, open it up to 2 Kings, 2 Kings 22. Once you are there, we'll get started. When we look at Josiah today, we are going to talk about Josiah's hope. Josiah's hope. As Josiah comes to the throne, he finds himself in a situation that's very bad and very dire. And through something miraculous, Josiah rediscovers hope in God. And we're going to look at what that looks like. Now, as you're turning to 2 Kings 22, I want you to think about this. Does anyone know an eight-year-old? Remember, think back if you can, when you were eight years old, maybe you have a child who's eight or a friend or a brother or a sister, or maybe you're eight. You never know. It could be an eight-year-old in here. And I want you to think about this. Imagine if you, as an eight-year-old or an eight-year-old you knew, ascended to the throne of an entire nation. What would it be like for that eight-year-old? What would it be like for you if you ascended to the throne? It probably would be crazy and really difficult. There's one thing that's true, and that's this, that you would need a ton of help. An eight-year-old is not going to, you know, get to the throne and say, all right, people, everybody listen up. I've been thinking about this for a couple months. Here's what we've got to do. This, 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 this. No, they are going to need advisement. They are going to need help. And in a lot of ways, when they come to the throne, they're going to just kind of leave things the way they are and listen to people. Now, last week we talked about King Hezekiah, who cleared out all the idols of of Israel and really set things straight in a lot of way. But this isn't just in total order. In between last Sunday's message and this message, a lot of bad things have happened in Israel. A lot of bad kings have come up. And idol worship has come back into the land. And when Josiah comes to the throne and he looks out, what he's going to be growing up in, in a way, is mass idol worship all throughout Israel. And as he's, you know, becoming king, he has a desire to take care of the temple, even though in the temple, not only are they worshiping Yahweh, they're worshiping other gods in the temple of the Lord. But nevertheless, they want to work on the temple, and that's where we pick up our story. If you're open your Bible to 2 Kings 22, read right there in the beginning. This is the beginning of the story. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. Now, we get to the part where Josiah is just taking care of some business. Re- jump down and read with me in verse 3. Now, in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, Az- Az- sorry. He's going to send him. Uh, Shaphan is a scribe, and he's going to do some work for the king. The king is going to send him to go over to the high priest and bring the high priest some money so that the high priest can pay the people who are working on the temple of the Lord. Right? They would need lots of work. There's people who are cutting the stones for the thing. There's people who are cutting the timber and doing all sorts of work. They need to pay him. They pay them, right? So this is just a little bit of business. It says this in verse 4. Go to Hilkiah, the high priest, 
that he may count the money brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers gathered, have gathered from the people. This is a lot like, have you, know, have you ever seen us take the emergency needs or the ENF offering here at Calvary as you're going out and you know, give some money to people who are in emergencies and things like that? The, the money that they've gathered from the temple, they're going to go and pay the people who are making all the improvements. And this is how I view this picture going, right? Shaphan is going to show up, and the high priest, in my opinion, he's sitting there, he's kind of got this blank stare on his face, and he's thinking, oh boy. And you're thinking, what's going to, about to happen? And as he gets there, we're going to pick up the story in verse 8. He walks up, he goes, hey, high priest, here's the money. I got some money for the people. Here, you can pay them, pay them. Don't worry, they're faithful people. We can just give it to them. And then Helkiah, the high priest, is just standing there. And he, he looks at Shaphan and he says this in verse 8. Then Helkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I, I, uh, I found the book of the law. I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And why is that a big deal? I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. What is that? Well, let me show you what that is. It's this. All right? Let's move on. You guys got it? No, let me explain what this is. Oftentimes, at the foot or the the cornerstone or near the beginning of a temple project, right, where you're going to build something, and you need to put into the foundation of that something that is the law, something to help you remember where you started, something as as a memory, as a cornerstone, you would put scrolls and or tablets there to help you remember where you were at when you first got started. This is kind of a time capsule in a way. As we start this project, let us bury these tablets that give us the instructions from the God. Right? That's what they find. It's unclear if they were looking for it or if they actually just stumbled upon it. But as they are doing renovations for the house of the Lord, they come across the book of the law. It's unclear again what they actually found, but most people think that they found the book of Deuteronomy right? So Hilkiah, the high priest, says, I found this. Now this is going to become a problem, because what they found and what they read is that the mass idol worship going on in Israel is going to not be good for them, because Yahweh, the God of Israel, has instructed them not to do that. Hilkiah, the high priest, is thinking, oh boy, I just found this in the, in, as we're making these renovations. Here's Shaphan, you need to go read this to the king immediately, because what's going on and what this says is not good. He actually gives it to Shaphan, and Shaphan reads it, and he says, I need to take this to the king. Now jump over to 22 verse 10. This is where we pick up our story. It says this, Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Ah! No! In a moment of grief and anger and anguish and, and fear, the king realizes that they are not living in line with what the book of the law, with what the Lord had revealed to them. And he says this, and if you jump down to in the halfway through verse 13, great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So he says, you need to go have these tablets. Have this book interpreted. Go out and find someone to tell us, what does this mean? What does this mean for us? And what ought we do? So they do that, and they find someone to interpret it. And what this person says is they say, 
She says, look, Josiah, because you have seen this, and because you are taking notice, if you enter into covenant and if you make these changes, Josiah, you may be spared, but I have bad news. The nation will not be. So it says this down in verse 20. Therefore, therefore, behold, I will gather to you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. So Josiah knows, if I follow these commandments, I will go to my grave in peace. So Josiah is going to make a covenant. He's going to say, all right, we found this. I'm looking around. I'm this young king. I don't want to be living in, in, as an enemy of God. So I'm going to turn this thing around. We're going to enter into covenant. So now jump into verse 23, uh, chapter 23, down to verse 3. The king stood by the pillar, which is the entrance to the temple, and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all of his soul to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in the book. And all the people entered into the covenant with him. So now they are going to go through mass renovation in Israel. Have you ever seen the show Fixer Upper? And the husband's name is Chip, and he, like, loves Demo Day. This is Demo Day for Israel. That's a terrible example. I'm sorry. If you don't know what that show is, uh, it's lame. That's not lame. They're cool. Okay, it says this. Let's look at some of the idol worship that's going on in Israel. Some of the terrible things that's happening. Because as Josiah is destroying them, I want you to keep in mind that this is what was happening. As Josiah tears down all of these altars, as the high priest goes through and cleanses the land, this is what was actually happening in the land. In verse 23 and the verse 4, halfway down, it says this, bring, or, To bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made to Baal, all of them that are made to the Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven, and they should be burned outside of Jerusalem. There are temples, there are idols in the temple. There are idols around Jerusalem and around Israel. If you see the word Asherah, think this. Asherah is a queen god. She's married to other gods. And what that would, what, how they would worship that god is that they would have a large, maybe an Asherah pole. Could, they're not sure. It could have been made of wood. could have been made of stone. But the point is this, that you would worship that idol so that Asherah would be worshipped, right? The same thing with Baal. It's probably pronounced Baal, right? You would worship the idol so that the god would be worshipped. So what Josiah is doing is he's saying you need to take these things out of here and you need to burn them. And then sometimes he is incredibly thorough. He grinds them to dust and spreads them over graveyards. He is, he's angry. He's, he's really intense. Let's look at a few more. If you go into 23, it says this in verse 5. He did away with the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and the surrounding areas of Jerusalem. If you were here last time, I burnt incense. And now you know that incense is important. See? I'm teaching you things. Verse 6. He brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the book Brook Kidron. And he burned it at the Brook Kidron and ground it to dust and threw its dust on the graves of common people. 
Whew, boy, that's intense. <laughs> Jumping over to the, maybe to the next page, 11, verse 11. He did away with the horses, which means he did away with the idols of the horses, which the kings of Judah had given to the sun. The, and then verse 12, the altars which were on the roof in the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made to the altars of Manasseh, he destroys them all. And then jump all the way over to verse 20. All the priests of the high places who were there, he slaughtered on the altars and burned human bones on them. And then he returns to Jerusalem. He is methodically and in an intense way going through Israel and Jerusalem and destroying these idols. And then when they get back to Israel, what does he say? Look, you've put your hope in all of these false idols and these false gods. Now that we have returned to turn to Jerusalem, we will honor the only one who you can have hope in, the one who brought you out of Egypt, the one who saved you, and the one who is your Lord. We will celebrate Passover. And they have a huge celebration and a huge Passover feast. I mean, huge Passover celebration. And they said, only God alone. And only God alone, not in these other altars and in these other idols will you find your hope. In Yahweh alone. Let me just take a moment to show you our first point. Without revelation, there is no hope. In Josiah's case, the revelation of the law that they found gave them hope. What does that mean? It said, you are putting your hope in all of these false idols. You need to put hope in Yahweh alone. To understand this point, I need to teach you a, a brief bit about what gods were like in the ancient world. Here's what I often thought. Israel would turn to all these other gods. This is my, this is my, my view of things, all right? Go with me on this. I would think Israel turned to all these other gods, and as Israel turned to these gods, what was really happening is that they were falling in love with these gods, and they were worshiping them out of adoration, or because they thought that these gods were worthy to be worshiped. And they were, they were in a way cheating on Yahweh with God, and they were saying, God, we love you, but we also love the Asherah poles. We also love Baal and all these things. We love all these gods. That's not accurate. And if we understand accurately what that worship looked like, then we will be able to translate it and it will make so much more sense for us today. Let me explain to you what this was like. Here's a quote for you. The quote says this, dogmatism in intolerance towards the beliefs of others was alien in the ancient religions. What that means is this, if you were in the ancient religions, and obviously, again, Yahweh, or, uh, Israel knows that Yahweh is the one true God, and they should be worshiping them, but the common practice of the day is this. You worship a God for that God's function. Let me say that again. You worship a God for that God's function. That's because gods were functionary things. Let me help you get clear on this. A God played a certain function. If you looked outside and you saw the sun shining and it was shining down on you, you would think there is a God that is performing that function, the function being the sun shining. Every God and every function had an attachment to it. You walk out and it's raining. Why is it raining? Because the God that produces rain is performing his function. If you had any type of function happening in the world, whether it be... um, agriculture, sun, fertility, uh, anything. There was a God, in a way, standing behind it, 
performing that function. So if you, as someone who wanted to worship the gods, you're not worshiping out of a sense of love and relationship. That would be totally foreign to them. You're worshiping out of a sense of fear that they're going to stop performing their function. So you needed to make that God happy, comfortable. If they were hungry, you gave them food on their altar, and you offered prayers to them. You were trying to make that God be happy and comfortable so that they would continue to perform their function. If you were experiencing a drought, that means the God who would give rain is angry with you. And you need to appease that God so that rain will come back into the world. Israel knows that this is not the way it works because on Mount Sinai, they learn that there are no other gods before Yahweh. However, over and over again do they fall into this. This type of life is exhausting Because if you are worshiping and trying to appease all these different gods, you have no idea if you're making them happy or not. Because the rain comes and the sun comes at different times, and if you're trying to make them happy and not lose that function, it gets exhausting. Look at this. You have it in your outline too. This is a Babylonian poem of the righteous sufferer. Someone who's trying to appease all of these gods. I wish I knew, it says this, I wish I knew that these things were pleasing to one's God. What is proper to oneself is an offense to one's God. What in one's own heart seems despicable is proper to one's God. Who knows the wills of the God in heaven? Who understands the plans of the underworld gods? Where have mortals learnt the way of a God? It's exhausting to not know what the gods want from you. There's another Assyrian prayer that starts this way. To the God that I know and the God that I don't know, to the goddess that I know, and the goddess that I don't know. Because you don't know. There's so many functions in the world, and there's so many gods that need to be served, you never know if you're making them happy, or if they're upset with you, and your life is exhausting. Let me illustrate this for you in a certain way. I'm going to have my trusty volunteers come down with gigantic balloons This is my brother-in-law, Ben. Give him a round of applause. He's doing a great job. Okay, Israel has one job. We've learned what it is a little bit. Yahweh has said, you shall worship me and me alone. This balloon says Yahweh on it. Israel's job, in a way, is to worship God. God is and claims to be the prime function giver, the only one who gives function to all things. He says everything you're doing is a waste because they're not giving function to the world. I am. Stop slaving and being in a way slaves to to worshiping all these different gods. You are putting yourself in bondage to do so. There's one job you have. Lift up Yahweh. This is Yahweh being lifted up. And this is what Israel does. Under good leadership and under good kings, they see the truth. And, the, and through the revelation that they have, they see that they ought to be lifting Yahweh up. But here's the problem. The culture that they live in and the temptation that they have is to say, yeah, but okay, I'm worshiping Yahweh, but if I don't, have the, if I don't worship the sun god, what on earth is going to happen if the sun goes away? So fine, I'll worship Yahweh, but you better believe I'm worshiping the sun god. Because if, if all of a sudden the sun disappears, I got serious problems. And you may think that it's possible to do this for a while. But here's the problem, Israel, and here's the problem, is that more gods enter in. you got to keep Yahweh up, the sun god up, 
and you make sure he's over there, and all of a sudden you got the, the God of rain over here. Yahweh, stay over here. The sun God, perfect, you go there. Rain, oh, Yahweh. You got to keep Yahweh central. Oh, no. The God of the sun, the God of the rain. I'm losing it. Oh, no. Yahweh, is that Yahweh? I can't hear. Okay, that's Yahweh. The God of the sun. Oh, no. Don't lose Yahweh. And here's the problem. Everything is falling all over the place. And what Josiah is telling them to do is, look at Israel, stop it. You have to stop. You have to let all the other gods fall. You don't find your function in them. You don't find your hope in them. There's only one where you find hope. Yahweh, lift them up. Just let it all else fall. Let them fall. Because there's only one person where you can find your hope, There's only one person you can find your purpose. And for us, that's Jesus Christ. That's Jesus Christ. you got to lift him up. Thank you, guys. And this is not, this this difficult, tiring, do do the gods know me? Do they see me? Where am I finding my hope? It's exhausting, and it's not what we find in the Bible. Jeremiah, a prophet during the time of Josiah, says this, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search with me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. God says, I will be found by you. Search for me, you will find me. Knock and I will answer. We are putting ourselves through torment. For us, these balloons that we're trying to keep up, these idols that we're trying to serve, aren't necessarily functions that we find in the world, but these idols in a way have turned into internal idols. And in a lot of ways, we find ourselves being the idol that we worship. When we say God alone is our hope, It is tempting for us to say, yeah, but I can make myself stable. I can make myself wise. I can make myself holy, and I can make myself happy. I don't need anyone else. Yeah, God, great. But in reality, I am the one where all of these things come from. I will find my hope in what I can do. I will find my hope in the talents that I have, and the abilities that I have, and in the processes that I have set up to run my life. And then when God wants to enter, we say, God, you can stand over there and watch me and make me feel a little better, I guess. What we need to do is is change that because God alone is where we find the source of our hope. Now, this doesn't mean, you know, you get sick or something like that. You're like, oh, don't even go to the doctor. Just pray. God alone is where our hope. That would be misinterpreting what this says. Here's what this looks like. It looks like commitment requires real change. It looks like real change in our life. When I was going through grad school, I always, not grad school, uh, grade school, uh, that would be different. When I'm going through grade school, I always struggled with math. It was difficult for me. I don't know why the numbers, you know, it was difficult. And as I got into high school, the problem only compounded, which is a math term, so take that, math. 
and I got into high school, it was, even, it was still difficult. <clears throat> so I kind of had this idea. You know what I'll do? When it comes to algebra, I'll just memorize. I'll memorize algebra. Take that, world. I'll memorize all of these things. I, I'll remember that this goes there and this goes there, and I'll memorize the problems. I had friends and teachers who would tell me that's not a good way to learn math. The best way to learn math is to understand it and to comprehend it so that no matter what problem arises, you have the tools to solve it. And I said, sounds good. I don't want to do that. It would be easier for me just to memorize it all. Well, then the test comes along and the questions are all different. They're put in a different way. Why? They're made in a certain way to test you if you comprehend the material. They're not there testing you to see if you've memorized it. They want to know if you comprehend it. And this is often what happens in our Christian life. We think we want change. God is our hope. And what we do, like C.S. Lewis says in his book called Mere Christianity, he has a chapter called, Is Christianity Hard or Is It Easy? He says this, we oftentimes live in a hard Christianity. And it looks like this. We want to do our own thing. We know that God is the hope, but we want to live our own lives. We want to be ourselves. I don't want God telling me what to do. So what I'll do is I'll add God on top of my life like an ornament. And when I'm going through my life and doing everything that I need to do, if I need God, fine, I'll come over here and I'll cherry pick what I want from morality or from what God says. Or if I'm feeling sad, I'll take something from the Psalms, you know, a prayer. But really, in reality, the core of my life is lived over here, relying on myself. He says, this is hard Christianity. Because what you're going to end up doing is that you're going to be constantly at war with yourself. You'll have your own desires and your own processes for making your life work, but God will be over here and that they will be at war. He gives this example. It's like a crown on a tooth. Does anyone have a crown on a tooth? You know what I'm talking about? Where you put a crown on top of a tooth. He says, that's what we do with Christianity. In reality, what we need is a root canal. That's what we need, a root canal to take the whole thing out. Another example is this. You have a field of grass, and we trim and we manicure that grass to get the results that we want. But in reality, what we're trying to grow from this field is corn, not grass. He says you can trim the field as much as you want. You're never going to get corn. To get corn, you've got to tear everything that's there up and plant corn. The same has to be true with your, with your dedication and with your life with Christ. Just like Josiah tore out everything that was unhealthy. He tore out everything that people had put false hope in. If you're going to follow Christ, you have to look at your life and tear out the things that you've put false hope in. And like I said earlier, we've put hope in ourselves. You have to die to yourself. You have to tear yourself out. But you think, is that truly easier? Yes. Because when you give up your life, what you give back is the life of Christ. When you look around, when you see people, and when you're wondering what actions to do, you don't have to be at war with yourself. What do I want? What does God want? If you are torn yourself out and you are given back a new life in Christ, you just look. And like that, that's, that hymn says, be thou my vision. Christ becomes your vision in all things. That's the challenge. That's what Josiah does, and that's what we have to find ourselves doing. But it brings us to my last point. This is all great. And that's a good plan for how to bring about revival, and like how Matt talked about last week with Hezekiah dredging out all of this sin in our lives. That's all great. 
but it relies on one belief that you need to have, that God is enough. God has to be enough. When we look around at what we, what we see, if you think God is not enough, I have to step in. You, you're, not, you're not seeing it. And my challenge to you is this. At the end of this Kings series, we've gone through and seen hundreds, maybe not hundreds, there are hundreds of examples, but we haven't seen them. We've gone through and seen plenty of examples of kings who've tried to do it. And at times they've obeyed the law, and at times they've turned themselves and opened their hearts to God, but at times they, their pride comes in, their selfishness comes in, their laziness. And for us, we look around, and at times we think that we can do it all. And we've had so many examples throughout this series of them not being enough, and that there is only one who is enough, God. God is the only one who has the power, who has the presence, and is the type of thing and can handle what we need to do to something. We need to worship something. And as we worship something and we become more like that thing, that is how we have change in our lives. And if we're trying to do that with anything else besides the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Father, displayed through Christ Jesus the Son, we're going to fall short. So what are you putting your hope in? Is God enough to sway you from that? Is God enough to sway you? Here's what I want to do. As we close this, <clears throat> I want to remind us where we've been throughout this morning, that through the revelation of God, we have our hope. Well, what is the revelation of God for us? We know a little bit through our just natural knowledge of the world that there could be a God, but through the Bible we see, and through the revealed word, we see who God is, what he's like, the things that he loves, who his character is, and his plan for us. So through the revelation of God, we have our hope. That was our first point. And if we're going to respond to that hope, if we want to have change in our lives, that that commitment requires real change. It can't be a superficial change that we lay on top of our lives and cherry pick from. It needs to go all the way to the bottom. It needs to root us out and give us back a new life based on the revelation of God. All of it points to one thing, that God is our hope. So here's what I want to do. In the chair rack in front of you, you have a New American Standard Bible. This is a New American Standard Bible. Maybe you brought with you one that's not that. That's okay. For sake of continuity, why don't you grab the one that's in front of you so that we're all looking at a New American Standard Bible. And what we're going to do is we're going to hold in our hands the revelation of God. And as we hold this in our hands, we're going to read from it. So what I want you to do is turn to Psalm, Psalms. And the particular psalm that we're going to look at this morning is Psalm 62. So go to Psalm 62, and verse 5 is where we're going to start. It's, it's about there in your Bible, <laughs> which is of no help whatsoever. It's after Kings, after Chronicles. Page 416, page 416 in, the, in the chair rack ones. Excellent. It's funny, it's page 792 in mine. That's weird. <clears throat> 417. Four, what? <laughs> it's in the fours. How about that? <laughs> Psalms 
62, Psalm 62. And as we, as we sit here right now, just think, I want you to think about this. Let me gather your mind for you. What you hold in your hands is the revealed word of God. Not just words on a page, but represents something greater. It represents the, the ideas, the mind, and the, the revelation of God. It tells us about who he is, that he is faithful, that he is true, that he is loving, that he wants to know you and be in relationship with you. He wants to save you. And as we stand here and the temptation to look to so many different things to find our hope, to look to ourselves to find our hope, to look to this world to find our hope, we need to position ourselves in a way that says God above all else. I will position myself towards God. When events arise in my life, I won't immediately think about how I can solve them, but I will sit with the Lord and allow him to redirect me. Why? Because he's changed everything about me, and I'm pointed towards him. So what we're going to do, out of respect for the word of God, is we're all going to stand, and we're going to read this together. So if you can, stand with me, and we'll read. We're going to read from verse 5 all the way down through verse 8. At the bottom, it's going to say a word, Selah. We don't have to read that. It just means kind of rest in the, in the, the actual thing. So we're, going to, we're not going to read that part. But what, we do, what we'll do now is read through this, and this will regather us. It will unite us as we end this Chronicles of the Kings series, and we look forward to a week talking about the mission and, the, and the, how we reach out to spread the love of God throughout the world. And even now as we look forward to Easter, let us regather us, realign us to the Lord. Read with me in verse 5. My soul wait in silence for God only. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God, my salvation and my glory rest. God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. God, you are a refuge for us. Lord, I pray for Calvary Church that we align ourselves under you, Lord, that we do not look for hope in any false thing. Lord, but you alone have given us, have revealed to us who you are. That should change us, Lord, a real change that changes us all the way from the inside. Lord, we love you. Be with us this morning. Guide us as we worship you, Lord.